So after two weeks uh, hearing from other pastors preach from other texts, we're returning this week to our series in the book of Acts. So it's been a few weeks. You may remember two weeks ago we were in Acts chapter 12, and we learned about the church in Antioch, and it says there they were first called Christians. And so this morning you read in those three verses that Brian just read that we are back in the church in Antioch. Uh, where we hear about something else that the Lord does with his people. So let me open us up in a brief word of prayer again, asking him that the Lord would speak to us. Lord, we believe in your Bible, in your words, that they are the words of life. And so uh, the scriptures teach us that they are able to teach us and to correct us and to encourage us. So we pray by your Holy Spirit that that would be the case this morning. For Jesus' name and for his glory we pray. Amen. So I encourage you to uh, either follow along on the sheet that's in your bulletin or have a Bible open in Acts chapter 13. Uh, We are going to extend a little bit into the later parts of chapter 13 and 14. But again, we're continuing on in this series in the book of Acts, which will be in primarily through the rest of the fall. Um, But because we've taken a few weeks off, it's, it's good to be reminded of what this series is all about. We've used this this phrase, God is on the move, to describe what this series in Acts is about. Because Acts is really the story of what happens after Jesus was ascended back up into heaven. And the disciples were wondering what was going to happen next, what was going to be the rest of the story. And what we see immediately is that the Holy Spirit is sent to be with the believers, for those that were witnesses of Jesus. And the Holy Spirit empowers this group of people to become the church, and then they follow him out into the world on mission. And so we've seen for 12 chapters, God do amazing things through this early church. We've seen miracles. We've seen conversions. We've seen uh, also hard things. We've seen persecutions. We've seen imprisonments. But God is on the move. And when God moves, things happen. And that's what we're seeing here this morning. Today is a little bit of a pivot point in the book of Acts. For the first 12 chapters, it's been primarily Jerusalem-centered. So it's been primarily about the Jewish people, about Peter, and about the early uh, church in Jerusalem. We've started to get little hints at other people coming into the story. So the Gentiles now are coming to faith, those who are not Jewish people. They've, they've started coming to Christ in mass numbers through the work of Philip and people like Cornelius who come to faith. And then we've been introduced to someone named Saul of Tarsus, who was a persecutor of the church and now has become converted and is now uh, the primary person in the story. So from Acts 13 on, Saul, who now becomes the Apostle Paul, is the primary actor in the story. The Holy Spirit is working through the Apostle Paul, and it begins today to send him out in a new and fresh way. So as we begin this morning, that just kind of catches us up in the book of Acts where we are. But as we begin this morning, I want to ask you a question. And the question is this, what is it that fuels you? So in the same way that you put gasoline in a car so that a car will go, or if you have an electric car, you can plug it in now, those are becoming a little bit more common. Someone said 10 years from now, most of the cars made will be electric cars. So We'll adjust that 10 years from now. But let's use the gas metaphor for now. As fuel goes into a car and a car goes, what is it for you? 
What is it that fuels you? I was away on vacation for the last two weeks, as you know, and so I had a good bit of chance to take a step back and think through what are things that bring me life, that bring me energy, that bring me joy, in the same way that a car that makes a car go. And um, you know, if you're, if you're just thinking about your life on a daily basis, you can think about things that just get you going. And let me just go through what a normal day for me looks like in the sense of what gets me going. I need at least, at least, eight hours of sleep at night. When I was on vacation, my mom was telling me, my my mom's maiden name is Shell, like seashell. And uh, apparently the Shell family sleeps a lot. And, uh, and this, is, this is just something I've learned that I guess my mom likes a lot of sleep, my grandfather likes a lot of sleep, and they call it tired shell blood, that's what they call it. And I guess I've inherited that, because I need eight hours of sleep at least, preferably more. But that's, that's how my day starts, is by getting a good night's sleep. I need coffee right away, first thing in the morning. That's the first thing I need when I get up in the morning. Preferably, as an introvert, I need some quiet time in the morning as well, too. Just time where I'm just kind of by myself, thinking, kind of getting my day started and quiet. Then, you know, after that, I usually need some people time later in the day. So I like being around people. So I'll have lunch or coffee with some of you all, or I'll go for a walk with somebody and try to have some people time. I've started getting a good habit of going for a run later in the afternoon. That just seems to, like, put a pep in my step and gets me going and kind of fuels me on. And then, this is the absolute most important one, is at about 8 p.m., I have to have a bowl of popcorn. Popcorn at 8 p.m. just is the perfect snack to get me ready for bed. And so Sarah and I enjoy popcorn. So those are just some examples of things that fuel me. And maybe you can think of some things that fuel you, things that just keep you going throughout the day. But today, I want to focus on the question of what fuels the church In the same way that I needed some of those things that I just mentioned, what are things that fuel the church? And the answer, I'll spoil it right away, what fuels the church and what always has is worship. Worship is the fuel that makes the church go. When the church is worshiping, the church goes. And that's what we're going to see this morning in Acts 13. Worship is the awe and the adoration and seeing the glory of God and acting out that beauty in the world by saying our, we're, our, our whole existence is for the worship of the one true God. Because, as Diane said, he gave his life for us. Our life is owed to him because he laid down his life on the cross and has given us new life in his name. And therefore, we worship him because he's worthy of our worship. He's given us new life. So the church this morning, as, we, as the title of the sermon is, the church is a sent people. So the one word we're going to focus on, really, uh, out of worship is sent. Sent. The church is a sent people. So what does it mean that the church is sent? I'm going to look at it through the lens of place. Place. So what are, what are three places that the, of how the church is sent? So what we're going to look at first is the place of change. Secondly, we're going to look at the place of sending. And third, we're going to look at the place of mission. All through just these first three verses that then spill over into Acts 13 and 14. So the church is a sent people. Here's the first point that I want to look at, the place of change. The place of change. 
So looking at Acts 13, just verse 1, what is the place of change uh, for the church? And what I'm going to look at here is it says here in verse 1 that there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, and then it names these five individuals. Some of them you recognize, Barnabas and Saul, and some of them you may not recognize. You have this man named Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, and then Menaean, who was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, it says. And so the, the point here that I want to make at the beginning is, if the church is a sent people, there's one necessary prerequisite before being sent, and it's only one. The only prerequisite to being sent is being changed. Or to use a more Bible-y kind of word, or theological word, it's to be converted, to have a conversion experience. And so these five people here that are mentioned were part of a growing, diverse church in Antioch. You may remember from a few weeks ago that Antioch was a big city, one of the biggest in the Roman Empire. And it, it attracted people from all different types of backgrounds. And so here you see a pretty diverse setting. These two guys, two, two of the ones you probably don't recognize, Simeon and Lucius, both of them have qualifiers to their names. One of them is called Niger, it says, and the other one, it says, is from Cyrene. Do you know what both of those things indicate for us? They're from the continent of Africa. Yeah. Ni- yeah Niger, which probably means black in Latin here. And then Cyrene was an African country. Both of these guys were probably African black people who were living in Antioch now, which tells me something. It tells me that they had come to Antioch from a faraway place where the gospel had not gone yet. And when they had gotten to Antioch, something radical had happened in their life. They had had an encounter with Jesus at some point in Antioch, something that was not from their home country, from where they were. But they had heard the message of Jesus, probably from Peter or from Philip or from somebody preaching in Antioch, and they had had a conversion experience. They had left a background far away culturally, religiously, and geographically from Israel, and they came to Antioch for who knows why. We don't know why they came to Antioch, but they were there, and while they were there, they encountered Jesus through Greek-speaking Jewish people. We learned that in Acts chapter 11, that there were Greek-speaking Jewish people who were teaching the gospel to those who were in the city. Then the other guy you don't recognize here, Menaean, depending on your translation, it either says he was part of the court of Herod, or it says he was a lifelong friend of Herod. And both those things are true, uh, just depending on the translation of the Greek, however you want to take it. But uh, if you were part of the court of Herod, that means you are a lifelong friend of him, because you got to know him from your childhood. But here's the point, Menaean was a powerful person because he knew Herod. It'd be like if you were good friends with the president of the United States or the mayor of Salem or just another powerful person who has influence. If you were to stay in that inner circle, you could make a good life for yourself because you knew powerful people. And Menaean could have gone down that path. He could have just stayed in this tight inner circle of authority and power. But again, he's like... Simeon, and he's like uh, Simon the Cyrene here, or the, the, the Cyrenian man. Of, he had some kind of conversion experience in the city of Antioch to where he's now a leader of the church as well. 
And again, we don't know. Here's the beautiful thing about these guys. We don't know their story. You may say, that's not a beautiful thing. And you're right. I guess it'd be nice to know how they were converted, what, what happened in their life. It'd be, it's going to be fun in heaven to hear everybody's story of how they came to know Jesus and how, they, how their life was transformed. But I think the beauty in it is it almost doesn't matter how it happened. The, the writer here, Luke, in Acts, is just saying, it happened. This person who was down one trajectory now is a leader in the church. He's a prophet or a teacher. And he's trying to tell other people about Jesus. His life has been transformed somehow. He has been changed. And now he's part of the five leaders of the church. And then you have Barnabas and Saul, which we do know their stories. Saul's story we know really well. Remember, he was converted, Acts chapter 9, when the bright light appeared to him, and he fell down and said, who who is this? And he says, this is Jesus, whom you're persecuting. And Saul was converted there, and his life was changed. Barnabas, we learned about going all the way back to Acts chapter 4, going even further back. Barnabas, his, his name means the son of encouragement. He was known as a person who was an encourager. And he got that name in part because he was generous with his life. That's what we learn about him first in Acts 4, is that he gave, he, he sold his field to contribute to the needs of the church. And so he became a leader in the Antioch church as well. So all these people have been changed. But now I just want to focus for a second on what is conversion? What is a theology of change in the Bible? And that book that I mentioned to you in the announcements, the Gentle and Lowly book, one of the reasons why I like that book so much is it talks about the heart of Jesus. It says that the name of the book comes from Matthew 11, 28 to 30, where it says, Jesus says, I am gentle and lowly in heart. Describes the heart of Jesus. And what conversion means in the Bible is not a change from this type of person to this type of person, or from doing that thing to now doing this thing. That's part of it. But primarily what conversion means in the Bible is a authentic, genuine, unexplainable change in the heart, in your heart, in your soul. Something that, that no preacher can do, that no friend can do, only God can do. Only God can change hearts. Only God can convert hearts. So I just want to give you just a few passages in the Bible where the word heart is used. I have 916 examples. Do you mind if I just go through these 916 examples? I won't do all 916. The word heart is used 916 times in the Bible. Not all of them deal with conversion, but a lot of them do. Let me just give you a couple of them that I think will give you an idea of what the Bible says about the necessity of the heart being changed. Beginning in verse uh, Genesis chapter 6, after, hum- after humanity sinned in Genesis 3, it says that God saw the wickedness of human hearts and it grieved him. It grieved him. He saw humanity's heart and he saw that it had become wicked because of sin. And what I want you to see right away is that a a heart that is sinful or a heart that is broken, it grieves God. It makes him sad because he knows the potential of our hearts for worship, for love, for compassion. 
And so when God saw that in Genesis 6, this rescue plan had already been unfolding beginning now through his people, through Noah, through Abraham, through the nation of Israel. And so as we go on, the prophets in Jeremiah 17, he says, The heart is desperately wicked and is deceitful above all things. But in Ezekiel, the prophet, he says, God will take our heart of stone and he will make it a heart of flesh. And he will give us a new heart and a new spirit. Psalm 51, you see David crying out. He says, create in me a clean heart, O God. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. He's saying, take your heart and place it in God's hands. Trust in him from your heart. Proverbs 4, 23 says, keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. And then in the New Testament, Jesus in Matthew 5 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And then it gets really good. John 7, Jesus says, whoever believes in me, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And we've already said John 3.16 at one time today in the children's sermon. But it's that famous story of Jesus talking with Nicodemus. And Jesus says, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what, I have to go back into my mother's womb? And Jesus says, no, you have to be born again in spirit, in your heart, in your soul. And you can do it by belief in me. Romans 5, the Apostle Paul says, probably sometime right after this story, he says, God's love has been poured into our hearts. How? Through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit who is on the move in this book of the Bible and in our lives is the one who pours his love into our hearts and changes our cold, broken, sinful hearts into hearts of flesh. Soft hearts who now have been changed and transformed into hearts that can love God and that can do amazing things in the world. And all that means you're converted. It's recognizing and acknowledging your broken heart and sinful condition. It means turning from your sin and being in a repentant state, turning to God, placing your trust and faith in the one who alone is mighty to save and to defeat sin, Jesus, and then committing to living your life for him. And the beauty of this whole process The beauty of this whole thing, like I said earlier, is it's not something that we can do on our own. It's not something that we can just change from one religion to the next. This is a work of God. This is a work of grace and a work of love and a process, usually. I want you to think of people that you know who who say that they have been converted. Maybe you've heard stories of people who have who have undergone this process of, of life change, spiritually speaking. It doesn't mean their life has gotten easier. It doesn't mean all their problems have gone away, but it means that their spirit is now different. They've been changed. Think about people you know. Think about what is common in their story. And what's common of a true conversion story is that these people are quick to say, it wasn't me that did it. It was God that came and found me. And he began this process of working on my heart, bringing people around me, and I was changed. And it didn't happen right away, but as the years went by, I look back and I see how my life is different, how I look at things differently, how my priorities are different, how my motivations are different. Let me just give you a brief story of my conversion. Maybe that'd be helpful. 
Um, I've told you, I think, a lot of my faith story, but this is a different part of my story, the conversion part of my story. I grew up in a Christian family, and by all accounts, I was a boring, obedient kid, um, which my parents are probably grateful for. But I don't have a story necessarily of, of a huge rebellion or massive problems. I was blessed with a fairly easy upbringing. But when I was 12 years old, I remember distinctly sitting on my grandparents' porch. And kind of like we had just in prayer time a few minutes ago, just having a one-on-one conversation with God and saying to God, I want to give you my life as an offering, not even knowing what that means. I want to give that to you and trust that what everybody's teaching me actually is true. I want to give myself to you. And do you know what happened right after that? Nothing. For like seven years. <laughs> I, could, I couldn't tell you one profound spiritual thing that happened for the next seven years. I was 12 years old approximately at that time. Um, but I didn't grow in my faith. I didn't necessarily see any life change. Um, it wasn't until I was about 19 years old, my freshman year of college, uh, the first week of being away at a large university with a lot of people and a lot of different opportunities to do different things, where I felt like that came back full circle and God met me in that moment where I was, I was on this place of, I don't really know if I want to continue with this faith because I don't really see any benefit. Nothing's changed. And so I, I even took some loose stabs at rebellion and nothing, nothing really came of that either. And I remember walking by myself once again through campus and just thinking about these people who had taught me growing up, my parents, the church. Uh, then the voice of my older brother particularly came into mind because he had gone through an experience in college a few years before where he encouraged me to find um, mentorship and people that would help me grow in my faith. And I remember having this moment of really at that point saying, okay, God, I know I made this, this confession when I was 12, but, but Lord, I, I, I'm an adult now. I'm living on my own. I, I'm really putting my life into your hands. Do with it what you wish. And you know what happened after that? Each year, just a profound, deeper closeness with God of taking risks of faith for him, putting my life out for him, and watching how he slowly but surely was moving me into new paths of life. Ultimately, that meant uh, serving cross-culturally for a brief bit of time. Ultimately, it meant coming to this church to serve you. And not every conversion ends in a pastor or a missionary or a full-time Christian worker. But what it does do is it, it unlocks the trueness of life for you. And the answers that you're longing for, God will give you through time. And through continually turning your heart over to him. And then you look back. I look back at my 12-year-old self or my 19-year-old self. And I can see change now in my life of a deeper trust in him. That's my conversion story. Let me get to these other two points here as we finish. So the first place was the place of change, which is the heart, the human heart. The heart of change to be converted. The second place that I want to talk about is the place of sending. So once you have had this change, this conversion experience, the place of sending is the worship experience of God's people. What you see here in verse 2 of chapter 13 is it says here, the key word 
is the first word in verse 2, which in my translation is the word while. While. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. God sends people from the context of a worshiping community. The primary sender of missionaries into the world is the local church. And we as a local church here in Salem have the awesome, amazing joy of having missionaries that we've sent out, right? We have the Mueller's. We have the Specs, who we're going to see in a few weeks. We have the Conants, who we've just brought on. We have Harry and Nora, this, uh, euphem- this, this uh, nickname we use for our, our missionaries uh, in Central Asia. We support missionaries from this church out of a worshiping context. The place of sending is the context of worship. And what I want you to see from this passage here this morning is that the church was gathered together. You had these five leaders, but there were certainly others in the church of Antioch. And they were doing two things. They were worshiping the Lord and they were fasting. And that's where the Holy Spirit speaks. So you may be sitting here listening to this sermon this morning and saying, all this sounds great, Stephen, but I have never heard the Holy Spirit speak to me. I've never heard the voice of God speak to me. Where is he in my life today? And I would say, you're right. It's very rare. But I also would say this. When was the last time you fasted? When was the last time that you were in the worshiping context, a worshiping context like this, and actually truly in your heart said to the Lord, I want to hear your voice? Because I, what I find is when I, whenever I'm not hearing the voice of the Lord, it's usually because I'm not actually putting myself in a position to hear him. And the two positions he asks us to come into is worship and fasting. Worship is adding in something. So usually when we come to worship and we sing or we're reading the scriptures together, usually we're feeling something. We're feeling God's presence with us. We're feeling joy by singing to him. So that's an adding of something. But then fasting is the taking away of something, right? The taking away of of food for a period of time. Why would you do that if you're not on a diet? The scriptures teach about fasting, and this is a whole other sermon, but the scriptures teach about fasting as a way of putting your whole dependence on God by removing even a, even a necessary thing, but something that can be a distraction, something as, as simple as food, removing it for a certain period of time so that you can be even more attuned to being dependent on the God who speaks. And that's what the church here seemed... It, it, It's not even really an extraordinary thing for this church. It seems like it just was mentioned as something that they did frequently, of worshiping and fasting. And that may be something for you of, if you're saying, I I want to hear the voice of the Lord, um, talk with me about what that may mean to, to look like in terms of fasting for you. Maybe there's a season you could set aside a meal or set aside a day to really hear from the Lord, to ask him to answer a question or to provide for a need which you've always needed to have solved, but haven't, haven't had the chance to, uh, haven't had the, the intentionality to step aside and say, Lord, I really am going to commit a whole day or a whole part of my day to hearing just your voice in fasting. The church here had come to listen 
They came to listen to the Lord and to worship to him in, in, in the context of the, of the local church context. And then the Holy Spirit speaks. And what he speaks, I think, would probably be terrifying to most churches. You know what he speaks? He speaks and he says, okay, out of the five leaders you have, I want two of them to go away. I want two of them to go to another church, to another context, to go somewhere else. God splits the Antioch church here. Do you see this? There's five people. Three of them he calls to be senders. Two of them he calls to be goers. And in a context like ours, in the church of Salem here, I have no doubt that if we committed ourselves to worshiping and to fasting, that God would send some of you away. Because the church is a sent people. And here's the thing. He wouldn't send you away against your will. He wouldn't send you away against our will. He would send you away to, to be on mission for him somewhere. And maybe that's a job that takes you somewhere. Or maybe you actually become a missionary and go somewhere. But God loves to send his people. And you know what he does probably after he sends those people out? He brings more people here. He grows his community in a kind of a cycle of way by sending people out, bringing people in so that the church community multiplies. That's the context of sending. The last thing that I want to mention, the last place that I want to mention just briefly here is the place of mission. And this is verse three all the way through chapter 13 and 14. This is Paul and Barnabas's first missionary journey. So if you follow the pattern in the book of Acts, you'll see three missionary journeys that Paul goes on. This is the first one intentionally. And in verse 3, it says, While they were, it says, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work I've called them. Then after fasting and praying, the church laid their hands on them and sent them off. The place of mission for the church, and this is where it gets really practical for you and I, the place of mission for us is the hearts of people in this generation. This generation. You can read all throughout chapter 13 and 14 a number of different places that Paul and Barnabas go. And you could, there's, a, there's a number of places that you and I could go in our city or in our world to go and serve. Namely, the, the unreached people groups that we pray for each Sunday or the countries that we pray for. But what I want to point out here, I want you to flip over to verse 36 in chapter 13. So 13.36. Paul is in this He's in this long speech, and he's telling uh, the people uh, who are uh, in Paphos and Perga and Pamphylia, uh, in in Antioch and Pisidia here. He's he's in the context of teaching them uh, the, the ways of God. And then in verse 36, he's talking about David. And it says, David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his father's and saw corruption. But, God, but he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Here's what I want you to see. David, the man who is continually called a man after God's own heart, what, how he's described here by Paul is it says, he served the purposes of God in his generation. In his generation. He didn't serve the people of God from the previous generation or the people that came afterward. He served the people who are right in front of him. So if you are a changed person, if you've had an experience with God that has changed your life, and you've been in the context of worship, and God has spoken to you, and he's called you, and he says, 
I want you to go, because that's what he does for Christians. Where will he send you? He could send you to a number of places, but primarily where he sends you is to the people in this generation. So we have people in this room from all different generations. We have millennials, we have Gen X, we have boomers, we have uh, other generations I don't even know the names of. But we have generations of all people. God has put you on this earth to be a beacon of light for people in your generation. To pave the way for the next generation so that one generation may pass along the works of God to another, as the psalmist says. And to continue the legacy of those who have gone before us, of those who have passed along the good news of Jesus. We are called to go to people near and far. We are called to go short-term and long-term. We are called for the people of this generation. Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so now I send you. As a Christian, as a believer in God, as a believer in Jesus, as someone who has been changed by the work of the Holy Spirit, you are now a sent person to go just as Paul and Barnabas did, that may be one option, or as a sender, just as the other three did. But you're one of those two. You're either sent or a sender, but you are a missionary as, as the work of God. Let me just finish with this last story. I, was, uh, I took a group of, of high school students to Boston on a mission trip five years ago uh, in my previous church. And we were serving in the city of Boston, and we took a lunch break uh, down by the Charles River one day. It's a beautiful day. And um, as we finished our lunch, one of the high schoolers decided to climb a tree because that's what high schoolers do in their free time. So this high schooler climbed a tree and was sitting up in a tree and one of his shoes fell off because it got stuck and it fell off onto the ground. And so one of the girls on the trip picked up the shoe and said, here, let me throw it to you. And she went up and she was going to throw it underhand like this. Unfortunately, she held onto the shoe a little bit too long before releasing it. And the shoe went over her head, not to the tree, to the guy in the tree, but straight back into the Charles River. She held on to the shoe too long. She didn't release it soon enough. And so it didn't go to be a helpful thing to the guy in the tree. It instead got washed away in the Charles River. Here's the point. As the church, let's not be too slow to release ourselves or to release others to the mission that God has for us. Let's not be like the person who holds on to the shoe too long and then throws it the wrong direction. Maybe, may we see our mission and be released in a timely, obedient way so that we might be used for helpful purposes in our city and our world. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we are a sent people. I pray that as we're Learning in this church, uh, our mission in Salem and in our world, Lord, would you show us with clarity in the context of worship and fasting where it is you want us to go, how it is you want us to serve, who it is you want us to see, our neighbors, our friends, those in our generation, those in our sphere. Lord, we want to bring glory to Jesus because he's changed us. So we give praise to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.